in order to make the, the, the discussion work, I'm going to ask Matt to, to stick to 15 and then we'll have a conversation, yeah? Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> Um, the paper itself was written in a hurry anyway, um, and a few weeks ago, and when I was on the road, and since then I've had more than one eye on organisation of that, so there might not even be 15 minutes worth in it. So I'll see how far I go. Um, it's a data-free zone. Um, it's based mainly on, um, I think, uh, a few personal reflections on the way that I see the, uh, the cultural politics of the subprime crisis playing out uh, in this country, and I'm not sure uh, that I make it quite clear enough in the written version of the paper that it is this country that I'm talking about and that these are personal reflections uh, I'm talking about. Um, so those are my uh, disclaimers for a start. I also think when I got to the end of the paper, I perhaps didn't fully understand exactly what the implications were uh, of what was underpinning the analysis, and that's maybe only struck me uh, subsequently. I think there were interesting new forms of class politics emerging in the UK uh, on the back of the economic fallout uh, from the subprime crisis. Uh, it seems as though it's possible, once again, uh, Harriet Harman and her timidity notwithstanding, um, to mention class uh, as a variable in British politics uh, and to think about the repercussions uh, of, uh, on society in general of the subprime crisis in class terms. And I think these new forms of uh, class-based political mobilisation uh, have many different manifestations. I think we see it in political mobilisation against executive pay and the bonus culture, especially when the bonus culture can be linked to the short-termism, which is seen to be at the heart of the uh, economic problems of the subprime crisis in the first place. The government, of course, at the moment has stuck to its guns that executive remuneration is not an issue for public regulation. Um, so the uh, class political formation there uh, has not had receptive ears within governments. We've also seen uh, increasing uh, prominence of debates about windfall taxes, windfall taxes on monopoly profits uh, that are emerging out of increasing retail prices. Um, again, the government has not really uh, exercised itself to suggest that this is a matter of public regulation. That might change depending on what happens at Labour Party conference next week, of course, uh, and that's yet to be seen. There are also forms of class-based politics, I think, around uh, access to housing as a social right again, and this seems to be rather different to what we were seeing in the politics of the housing market uh, as recently as 12 months ago. That uh, Then uh, it seemed to be uh, that the people were asserting rights uh, to ensure that they could ride on the back of uh, booming house prices. Uh, and so house prices were more important in the politics of the housing market uh, than homes. Uh, I think homes uh, have become uh, rather more important just recently. And the government has shown uh, some sympathy to this. We've also seen some rather curious manifestations. We've seen bank nationalisations in name, which in practice, because there's not really... A uh, a particular uh, distribution of authority back to public regulators within those nationalisations. So they're, they're nationalisations that aren't. Uh, we've seen non-nationalisations of banks, uh, uh, sorry, we've seen uh, formally announced non-nationalisation of banks uh, that have many of the uh, principles of nationalisation built within them. Uh, so the way that the special liquidity scheme, for instance, has morphed into uh, suggestions of direct government buybacks 
uh, of distressed mortgage-backed securities uh, would seem to uh, tick most of the nationalisation boxes without actually uh, formally being uh, presented in this way. So there are a lot of interesting class-based politics going on uh, in the background here, I think. But the real focus of my paper uh, is something that I've detected increasingly in media reports, uh, and that's a middle-class politics of resentment that's getting voiced through the media. And it's a middle-class politics of resentment at the effects of a stalling housing market on them, on them personally, uh, and on the wealth that they've created, uh, often through the housing market itself. And I'm most interested in how this has arisen and how it's become incorporated into practice. In particular, middle-class resentment at the winding down of the house price bubble has manifested itself as some sort of self-appointed right to special treatment, uh, to special treatment in the political response from the government uh, to the current frailties of the housing market. Uh, I was struck by a Metro headline that I found in May. Um, so I'm almost playing virtual Metro headline tennis with Will Hutton here. Uh, <laughs> it wasn't the sort of thing that I expected that I would be doing uh, over the last couple of days. But here it is. This is in May. Uh, and the Metro uh, had been formally telling us about the economic crisis uh, embedded in the uh, subprime difficulties uh, since last summer. Uh, and it was then just an economic crisis and it suddenly has these social manifestations and these social ramifications at the point at which it is possible to declare that the debt crisis hits the middle classes. And this, I think, this, this sense that something significant has changed socially uh, as the shift becomes uh, focused on middle class savings uh, and middle class wealth holdings uh, has had a really important effect uh, on the cultural reproduction uh, of the response uh, to the crisis. The government has been very sympathetic, uh, I think, to claims uh, that middle-class wealth uh, is something that's specifically to be protected uh, and to be ensured. And I think that this shows up in the particular patterns of assistance that have been made available to banks uh, in trying to stabilise their balance sheets. Uh, there's a curious co-evolution uh, of the two. On the one hand, we see the cultural politics of middle-class resentment uh, at their own weakening wealth-based position. And on the other hand, we see co-evolving with that uh, particular patterns of assistance to prop up uh, banks' balance sheets. These could, I guess, just be coincidental, given that they're happening in a period of fairly uh, rapid political and economic change. I suspect that they're not coincidental, though. I suspect that they're all bound up uh, in a greater uh, sense of uh, cultural and social shift. Uh, in the politics of the subprime crisis. And in this country, at least, I think it's led to the political reinvention of a phenomenon uh, that most accounts have uh, as having suffered death by Thatcherism, and that's the phenomenon of housing classes in this country. I think it's a different sense of housing classes uh, to the 1970s, in which the literature pointed to the way uh, in which uh, life chances from birth uh, were structured uh, through both the labour market and the housing market, either into uh, council-based tenancy or into owner occupation. I don't think it's the same as that. It's not reinventing that. But we do see, uh, I think, a, a form of new political engagement of housing classes. The main arguments that I try to pursue uh, in the paper are as follows, although not necessarily in the order that they can be found there. 
Firstly, I'm interested in the position that the banks have had in all of this. I'm interested in how, really from a position of both economic and political weakness, they've been empowered by the cultural housing class politics of middle class resentment to assert claims to public money guarantors of their balance sheet positions. Uh, and I think this has happened, uh, and happened increasingly so. This has been achieved via an increasingly enveloping cultural political discourse of responsible mortgage borrowers. There's been an attempt to generate, through the media, forms of social stratification uh, in which those who have claims to financial literacy uh, can present themselves as being almost wholly innocent victims uh, of the current faltering house price position uh, within the British market. And all the time, because this is couched in terms of social stratification, there's a conception of the other being played out here uh, as well. Uh, and the other is the subprime borrower. Uh, in the way that Jonna described it at the beginning of her um, presentation. It is also, although the formal technical language uh, is not used uh, in this country in the same way that it is at the US, it's the delinquent uh, borrower, uh, as we heard from Paul's presentation yesterday. And in this, there's an, uh, an absence, uh, I think, uh, of cross-class empathy within the housing market. There's an attempt to re-stratify perceptions uh, of who is in what uh, sector of the housing market, uh, how their house price has been affected by uh, broader uh, structural economic trends, and who has first claim uh, on any form of government assistance that might be uh, forthcoming. This is maybe pushing it too far, but I've certainly explored the possibility in the paper uh, that the whole concept of responsible mortgage borrowing, uh, and by implication of responsible mortgage borrowers, uh, has been encased in some form of a, a developing moral crisis. Uh, it's a moral crisis of the financially literate that's been activated on their own behalf. That these are the people um, who uh, assert that they have good claims to be seen as acting like model financial citizens. They've done everything that's been asked of them in the government's recent financial literacy drive. They've thought of themselves as asset holders. They've thought of how to invest those assets sensibly, thinking of the long term, the future, how to cash them in uh, to restrict their, their subsequent claims uh, on state welfare provision. So the government's financial literacy drive, I think, has almost empowered um, this form of social stratification in the cultural politics uh, of the subprime crisis, leading to a moral panic uh, about responsible mortgage borrowers. And if this has indeed taken hold, then I think it's easy to see how the subjects of the crisis uh, can shift subtly but perceptively in public discourse from the banks who made reckless subprime loans in the first place to the people holding those subprime mortgages. And even though uh, the figures are more difficult to come by in this country, as Jonas says, uh, about actual, uh, about actual uh, entry into uh, the subprime category, we do know quite a lot uh, about the multiples of income that mortgages are sold at uh, in Britain. And in 2006 alone, over 1,200,000 mortgages were sold at multiples in excess of six times salary, overwhelmingly to poorer people. So 1,200,000 new mortgages sold at over six times salary. So in a context of increasing mortgage repayments cost, um, these are potential uh, mortgage debtors just waiting to happen. And overwhelmingly, it's concentrated uh, in poorer families. 
Uh, and it's easy uh, to engage in cultural constructions that they're somehow to blame uh, in all this. Uh, and I do sense that this is what's coming through a lot of the press reports. The pattern of, uh, the pattern of uh, political support um, in terms of uh, raiding taxpayer money within the response to the subprime crisis I think has also followed the construction of privileged subject uh, positions within the moral panic. So I think it's had uh, effects uh, in this respect. Crucially, it incorporates the banks as worthy recipients of support. Two of the ways of protecting the middle classes, protecting their savings uh, and their wealth holdings, uh, are to support the balance sheets of banks. Uh, middle class savings that are tied to stock market capitalisation uh, are in danger uh, if banks' balance sheets uh, lead to uh, runs on banks, which then have subsequent effects on the stock market. Middle class wealth embedded in the structure of house prices, even more obviously, uh, can be uh, protected by supporting banks' balance sheets. And we've seen a range of government interventions, from asset swaps uh, of highly saleable government debt uh, for uh, potentially worthless mortgage-backed securities, uh, and also now straightforward government buybacks uh, being floated through uh, last month's Crosby report. The interesting thing analytically for me on this, and I think I've already had my five-minute warning, so I might have to uh, wrap up with this, um, is what happens to uh, the price system. So going into the abstract reflections about the price system, I think what we see is a bifurcation. On the one hand, we have the suspension of the self-regulation of the price system for determining the value of the bank's balance sheets. This has increasingly been incorporated into new forms uh, of government help and new forms of government intervention. But this now coexists with the continued defence of the self-regulation of the price system for incorporating society into the business models of the banking sector in the first place. So we see uh, a suspension uh, on behalf of the banks uh, of the self-regulation of the price system at exactly the same time that society continues to be incorporated into the uh, business models of banks uh, through a self-regulating price system. And I think in that respect it's probably understandable uh, why one of the reactions of society to this inequity uh, has been uh, the announcement of new forms of class politics, uh, new forms of class politics from the left, but the government's refusal to support these new manifestations of older forms of class politics suggests to me that two radically opposed approaches to the regulation of the price system will continue to exist side by side. And in the theoretical terms that I describe in the paper, this for me is, uh, bears all the hallmarks uh, of a period of Polanyi's instability. Polanyi's concept of the double movement is often misinvoked. Uh, in the form of some sort of temporally li linear pendulum swing uh, from, uh, from uh, market self-regulation to societal protection. I read it, uh, and I'm influenced in this respect by my PhD student Chris, who's sitting on the end, because he always also reads Polanyi in the same way, to suggest that the real problem, the real social instability, uh, arises when you have multiple forms uh, of regulation uh, coexisting in an unstable, uh, in an unstable balance, uh, and I think we see the development uh, in this 
selective suspension of the self-regulating price system within the banking sector, I think we see uh, evidence of the onset of this form of planning instability. I believe my time is up, James, so that's probably only half my paper, but I'm going to stop there. Thank you. Thank you. Just one second. What's the dilemma, the Polanyi dilemma? You said dilemma, and you haven't explained what the word what is the dilemma in Polanyi. Uh, the dilemma uh, that's in the title of the paper, uh, I see less as being within Polanyi, but more within the the situation uh, that regulators are faced with. I I think I, in the presentation, I give a slightly one-sided version of this. Um, there's criticism implied uh, of government intervention to banks, but can they uh, ever feasibly not intervene uh, to help set up those uh, support structures for the balance sheets? So that's the concept of dilemma that I'm working with, uh, that the intervention itself uh, perhaps produces instability uh, in the form that Polanyi describes, uh, but non-intervention um, is probably ruled out uh, as a non-option. So that would be a classic dilemma, wouldn't it?